You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success. All the big questions for work and life. My name's Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Fred Pellard. Fred is the author of a book called How to Be Strategic. He is a former rocket scientist and also strategic consultant to some of the biggest brands in the world. Nike, Barclays, Ernst & Young, The Guardian, Tate, Sky, Ikea, the list goes on. So before we get into that episode, just a quick reminder that the tickets are on sale for my six weeks to Ninja evening class. It's UK time, Thursday evenings, six weeks during November and December. And if you want to find out more about that, just go to grahamalcott.com. We'll put a link in the show notes as well at getbeyondbusy.com. But I'd love you to come along, basically. It's a small group. The idea is that we will be going through some of the key chapters and therefore habits of my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, all the stuff that you need to get organised ready for the new year, all the stuff that you need to kick your productivity into shape. So if you want to be part of that, Six Weeks to Ninja, it's the first time I've done it. It's basically taking all the stuff from my one day masterclass and putting it in an evening format. I'm really excited about doing it in this new format. And it's called Six Weeks to Ninja. So it's on Eventbrite if you want to just search it on there and also just at greatmocot.com. I'd love you to check it out. Right, let's get into the episode recorded as they all are these days. I used to really love doing them face to face and um, now they are all, all down the line, sadly. Uh, but recorded just a couple of weeks ago, here is my conversation with Fred Pellard. Fred Pellard, how are you doing? Very well, Graham. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I was, I'm was i quite amused by the fact that you just had told me that like your preparation for this conversation was listening to Beyond Busy and I was the soundtrack to your journey through Kent. I don't think I've ever been described as that before. So that's a, that's a, that's an amusing start. My pleasure. It was, you know, the, the, <laughs> and also it was the first trip after the end of lockdown this year. So you were absolutely a sign of freedom. Oh, I'm a sign of freedom. Oh, that's, that's made me happy at um, five, five o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, so we're going to talk about your book, How to Be Strategic and talk strategy uh and this has been before you wrote the book obviously a big part of your life's work right absolutely yeah, yeah. it's one of these um it's one of these sort of 15 years of experience uh shoehorned into 200 pages <laughs> so you were a management consultant um and you worked for calchas and the instigate group and with a lot of people who've worked for mckinsey and bain and um, the kind of consultancies that people would know about. Um, what would you say, if someone doesn't know that world, how would you describe the life of a management consultant? Um, so the life of a management consultant or a strat consultant is um, uh, long hours, huge amount of, uh, of structure, and extraordinarily varied. So one of the differences between sort of these careers and more corporate or even tech startup is when you work in consulting, every three months you have to enter an entirely new world and find a way to fit in. Mm. So you're going to tackle a completely new problem. In particular, as it were, there's two strands of consulting, and that's why I was kind of mentioned. There's management consulting and, and strat consulting. And strat management consulting is very much about telling companies how to do things. Um, and usually it comes from a place of expertise. And then strat consulting is more working out with companies what, what else they might be doing. And it comes more from a place of sort of analysis and discovery. Yeah. And so management consultants tend to be a bit more senior and a bit more um, uh, sort of prescriptive, whereas strat consultants are a bit more sort of junior and discovery, you know, discover things. And both of these involve long hours and intellectual stimulation. And when I've worked with consultants as well, I mean, just the sort of geographical spread of it, you know, so I'm just going to live in Reading for three months and then I'm going to be in Edinburgh and, you know, just that whole sense of kind of often being placed in, you know, faraway places in hotels and, and that kind of stuff. Is that an experience that you can relate to? Was that a, a big part of your own career? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been I've been in Britain for 20 years. Um, I'm now sort of a British citizen as well as a French citizen. And the first five years in, in Britain, I, I'm so grateful that I got to spend time in, you know, Rotherham and Doncaster and, and Grimsby and, and <laughs> to really get to experience the reality of, of a country. Absolutely. There's probably like a sort of George Orwell book or something in that, um, you know, the, the Frenchman in Grimsby or something. right? <laughs> absolutely. Yes just feels like an incongruous thing. So you mentioned there before this idea of walking into a new workplace, a new organization, a new building, a new culture, and having to try and work out how they do things and having to try and fit in and, and be, be part of that culture. Um, were there any particular examples of organizations that the culture was just particularly striking or where it went wrong or like just what were some of the the sort of more extreme experiences of culture that you've had over the years? Well, some of the things you, you, you might say is, you know, a consultant who works into organization is a foreign body trying to integrate. And if they integrate well, they can get uh, the organizations to go in certain ways. If they don't, they're on the outside. And so you spend a lot of time really looking for the clues, the codes, the, and you might notice things that even some of the uh, the employees in these organizations don't notice. So, for example, um, over the years, I've done quite a bit of work, more as a trainer than a consultant, to be fair. So I, I've been a consultant for 10 years, and I've been a, a trainer for the last 15. And as a trainer, you get a little bit closer to organization. Very simply put, a consultant is someone whose companies has been hired by your company to help improve things. A trainer is someone who is in the room to help you become smarter. So there's more of a you know personal connection. And as a trainer, for example, I work a lot with broadcasters in the UK. So I work with BBC, ITV, Sky, and Channel 4. And then when you work across all, you notice some interesting things. Um, so for example, you know, about sort of timekeeping. Um, there is an element where we're talking about productivity. In some organizations, let's say hypothetically Sky, there's a really strong element of, you know, we're going to deliver, we're going to be productive, we're going to be organized, we're going to be structured. So if a meeting is on the hour, then you show up, you know, five minutes before. Um, at the, you know, somewhere in the middle, sort of ITV, the hour is the hour. Channel 4 is a bit more, well, you know, if you show up at the meeting within five minutes after it has started, you're still on time. And then at the BBC, there's usually a tendency to, to, to you know, juggle many, many balls, actually handle a lot of different stakeholders. As you know, you've got to please, you know, certain constituencies. You've got to be careful about the mindful of some of the press, etc. And so lots of people juggling lots of things. If you show up at the meeting within the first 15 minutes, you're still considered on time, for example. Right. And that's right. A, And after a while, you kind of go, okay, that's an interesting, that's a sort of cultural norm. And you know that if one were to take a jump with these organizations, then, you know, you, you, you go with the cultural norm. Um, have you watched the sitcom W1A, which is like a spoof of the BBC? Uh, absolutely. And just as I was telling the I was about to say, one has to be a little bit careful about over um, uh, sort of deriding uh, some of it. Because at the other end, now talking about other organizations, sometimes extreme productivity, as you know, can lead to, uh, to uh, massive problems. Because as we've seen, for example, with supply chains during the pandemic, when you optimize everything within an inch of its life, then all of a sudden, when a couple of people get sick, then the whole organization falls down. So there's a little bit where, uh, in particular, um, quite commonly, the more creative someone is, the less productive they're going to be, and vice versa, uh, according to the classic metrics of productivity. Um, uh, there was a great, um, oh, I forget his name now, but the writer of The West Wing, Aaron Sorkin, um, you know, has, a great, um, has a great comment, which is, he goes, I have all my best ideas in the shower. And taking a slightly productivist take on that, he goes, well, if all my best ideas are in the shower, he, he actually installed a shower in his office. <laughs> and, every, and every time he was stuck for ideas, he'd have a shower. And one of the things he realized is, actually, by the time you productivize the hell out of the shower moment, it's no longer serendipitous and an early morning or late evening endeavor, and you get less out of each additional shower. Mm, but I think ideas come often in um, the places that you least expect them because that's where there's space, right? And so, you know, certainly for me, if I've had a really difficult long day, 
and I know there's another 15 things to do on emails and everything else, often the best thing, and I don't always stick to this, but the best thing is just to get outside and go for a walk for half an hour because often just that process of sort of clearing your head and being being outside of your desk and your work is often the the place where your brain figures it all out, right? Well, that's absolutely, absolutely. And in particular, the, the approach that you describe is one that companies slightly underplay. Because if, if I talk about sort of one really well-known model that I put in sort of how to be strategic is um, the, the different ways by which people learn and the different ways by which they solve problems. And so if you think about, you know, it can be a bit derided, but NLP, identify the fact some people are very visual, so they see stuff. Some people are auditory, they hear it and talk. And some people are more digital and some people are more kinesthetic. So what you describe typically would be described as kinesthetic. So people who need the sort of the physical activity to stimulate the brain. Um, I know quite a few people, in particular people who work in strength consulting, where when you force them to go and walk to think, their brain freezes because they just they, they get lots of stimulation and, and input from the body, which doesn't help with, with problem solving. Okay. And so the bit, the bit that I would say here is um, what you describe, for example, is one type of idea generation, which is what I would refer to as sort of the serendipitous, which is, you know, let me um, bring from the nether regions of my recesses brain, poof, a flash of insight. And then typically the thing that I tend to help people with more is at the other end of the spectrum, which is the idea of like, how can you create what I would call structured brainstorm? Yeah, And so if you think of the three sort of completely, um, you know, serendipitous, which is the one you described, you know, go for a walk and hope for the idea to, to land on you. Um, a more traditional one is in an in a, in a office environment, 10 people get together to solve a problem. And typically, they'll the classic technique they will use is to brainstorm, um, whether they use, you know, post-it notes or, or just um, verbal language, but they'll kind of each contribute. And what I tend to help people with is slightly more structured brainstorm technique, um, which really means sort of take the time to to um, create some booster rockets under the first five ideas you'll have. So most people's brainstorm stops after five ideas. You you know, you, if I ask you sort of, you know, which restaurants, well, we could go there, we could go there, we could go. By five, you go, I've got a long list now, I'm done. Mm. And, and usually the first five solutions can be the ones that are sort of top of mind. And then... Um, it's helpful as a, as, a, as a team, for example, as a large group, to create an environment in which you will get past the first five to discover a few more. And there's a thing that you wrote in the book which really resonated with me. Um, so you basically say being strategic is a skill and you can learn it. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's often, I guess it's often thought of as being like a character trait um, and it's often thought of as being, you know, most people's experience of strategy is that once a year or so they're taken to a hotel somewhere and they do some strategy, but actually thinking about it more as a skill and thinking about it more as something that you can inherently apply and use in all of your decisions and kind of day to day, um, I think it is just much more compelling. So if someone's listening to this, how, if you, I think there'd be a lot of people listening to this who don't necessarily feel like they are strategic people or feel like they they could have more strategic thinking. So how can people learn it? Like what, what are some of the, the key ways that you can just get better at being a strategic thinker? Okay. Um, so yes, um, the I love the, the dichotomy or the, the, the comparison you've made between sort of strategy and strategic. And a lot of people's experience of strategic is actually strategy, which is, you know, the big decision done once a year of the organization, as you say, in, in that hotel. Or if I make an analogy with, you know, uh, people traveling to see to see some friends, the strategy is who you're going to go and see and what weekend. There you go, boom. And the, uh, so it's, take, it's done once for the trip. The strategic is at various points asking yourself, actually, should we continue on the motorway? We'd be better off taking a, a smaller, um, you know, a better, more touristic journey with more um, uh, sites. Or should we stop at this petrol station or at the next one because it has slightly better food? And so what you find is the strategy tends to be the end destination that you spend a long time thinking, but once it's set, it's set. Mm. And the strategic is the, the question you might ask yourself at various points in time to ensure that you uh, achieve your outcome. And 
one of the reasons people are a bit uncomfortable around strategic is because of the infrequent nature of strategy. If there's a skill that you use once, I mean, you know it. If you, if I go into the the kitchen or the uh, uh, you know, the work cabinet. If you're in the kitchen and you open your cutlery drawer, you look at a spoon, you look at a fork, you look at a knife, you know how to use it without a problem. And then there'll be some slightly bizarre utensil, probably in the second drawer. Where you know, <laughs> oh, how do we use that again? I've because, got a couple of those. But there you go. Because that might be the ones you use once a year for the turkey at Christmas or you know, I don't know, an egg shaver for Christmas. And every time you look at it, you go, oh, how does it work? And one of the issues with strategic is it is a skill. The more you practice it, the better you're at it. And it's a slightly, it, it, it's quite at odds with the most, uh, the most classic way by which people solve problem every day. Uh, if you give me sort of another minute here, I'll, I'll expand a bit and I'll say there's four ways, there's four main ways to solve problem solve problems. The expert way, the analytical way, the creative way, and the strategic way. And most of us spend most of our days in the expert mode. In other words, when we're trying to solve a problem, most of the problems we solve every day are problems for which we already have the answer. Um, and by the way, that's lucky because it's good for one's sanity, and it's also good for one's uh, income because you get paid for the stuff you're good at doing. Yeah, your CV or your LinkedIn page is effectively a manifestation to the outside world of the stuff you're good at solving. Yeah, and then every every software. And by the way, there's quite a few professions. I don't know, personal trainers, uh, police officer, uh, estate agents who spend most of their day exactly in that mode. They have a body of information that's not available to their counterpart, and therefore, at every hour of the day, they're the expert. They're either the law literally for police officers, or they are the most knowledgeable about the, the market for estate agents, etc. Um, the second way to solve problem, which is the analytical mode, is one where it's, you know, what if the problem has never been tackled before? And we've seen a lot of that around COVID, you know, how do we keep, how do we work? How, how's, what is my job going to look like? How do I make the organization work? How is the country going to keep everyone safe? You know, how's the government going to help people keep people safe? And usually at that point, there's a tendency for people to default to the analytical approach, which is to say, there's lots of information that I'm missing. Let me go and gather all the facts and then I'll see the solution emerge. Um, professions like, you know, lawyers, investigative journalists, engineers, specialist doctors spend their days doing that, being very analytical. Um, and by the way, you or me might do that when we're looking at buying a new car. You know, we'll spend a lot of research, we'll go and visit, etc. And that's a great yeah. way to solve problem. Um, slight drawback is um, if you can hear all of these, a lot of uh, analytics is not a great way to invent the future. And then the third way to solve problem is the creative one that goes, let me not worry too much about things I don't know. Let's invent a number of solutions. And you think about, you know, whether it's designers or advertising creatives or even sometimes military officers or your GP, many of these people will really quickly come up with a range of options to a particular problem rather than worry about gathering too much data right away. And if and if you if I put these in front of you, they'd literally be you know if you think about the matrix and the blue pill and the red pill, what I've shown in front of you here is sort of the, you know the left path, the middle path, and the right path. Uh, the, the the one ahead is the expert. The one on the the the, the analytical is I, I refer to it as the submarine of analytical research is the one where you spend more time, you go underwater, you disappear for a while, you gather lots of information, and then maybe at the end there's a there's a sort of a missile that appears with a solution. And then the creative one I refer to as the helicopter of creative discovery, where you take off from the ground, you come up, you, you explore your surroundings, and you, you come up with a, a wide array of, of ideas right away. And when you think about these three, you probably, usually when I describe them like that, people go, oh, the first one is my dad, the second is my brother, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and my brother's girlfriend yeah. is very much. So we can, we can quite easily recognize more than just you know um, archetypes who can recognize friends and family and colleagues in these three descriptions of the expert the analytical and the creative um, and then the fourth one very few people recognize because it's a slightly less visible skill because if you think about what is a strategic person 
a strategic or, or strategic mindset. Let me be a bit careful because I, when I call someone creative, it's usually someone who spends most of their day solving problem in a creative fashion. An analytical person will spend most of their days solving problem in an analytical fashion. Um, think of these as like cutlery, you know, the fork, the knife, the spoon. Some people have a strong preference for one, but we will borrow from each of these um, utensils when the, for the, in the right circumstances. And the and now the strategic one, and sorry, it's a slight long preamble, but it goes the strategic one. Most people are a bit anxious, and then usually it clicks in the next thirty seconds because the way I explain it is, I go, if something is strategic, it's in the future. If it's in the future, no data is really reliable. Again, think about you know March twenty twenty when we're looking at what happens with our societies under COVID. Um, so if it's in the future. If, if you're strategic, you're looking at the future. If it's in the future, the first thing you got to do is be creative. Yeah. And then you come up with a range of possible solutions. And typically, the difference between a creative and a strategic, creative is often a subjective choice as to which solution you're going to go with, what you know, which way you're going to redo your kitchen, what, what clothes you're going to wear today. All of these, you can have lots of ideas. And then how do you decide on one? subjectively, either in, intuitively right away or over time by mulling things over. If it's a strategic issue, once you've had all the options, you're going to tell yourself, look, I need to absolutely be objective in the choice of the, you know, what is the approach that minimizes the number of deaths in society? What is the approach that minimizes the impact on, um, you know, on all our jobs and on GDP? What's the option that combines these two? And to be ruthlessly objective, you now have to sort of take your creativity and combine it with a very, very analytical approach where you kill a lot of your, or you eliminate a lot of your ideas because they don't stack up. And so that's where if you approach things creatively and you end up you know, let's say you have particular biases that you can't see or particular kind of pet ideas that were yours and you think are really great it can be really easy to just follow those through. And then, you know, that's where by sort of stress testing it and analyzing it, you, you really, you know, come to look at these things more objectively rather than just kind of hanging on to the bits that were more memorable or made more sense to you. Absolutely. And one of the, uh, um, by the way, apologies. Sometimes I can talk for a few minutes at a time, as you know, that's okay. Um, I I only, I knew they were going to, I I knew they were, (laughs) they were floor traits. So I was, I was just, uh, leaving you to get through the floor. (laughs) Thank you very much. And also the drawback is, you know, earning a living as a public speaker. Sometimes there's a talented to go. And now let me tell you the 27 anecdotes. (laughs) And on my next slide. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Apologies for that. Um, so, the next slide I was going to ask you about is this slide um, of the roller coaster of strategic thinking, because I think that leads on quite nicely. So um, tell us about that roller coaster. And presumably, this is um, a process that you're going through with clients. Absolutely. Like, that's kind of like almost the way that you would structure a, a strategic process. With Absolutely, clients, right? and that's one of the things. So, if you, you know, we're all familiar with what a roller coaster looks like, but imagine a very simple roller coaster. So it goes up down and back up again. And in that little simple shape, you've got the shape of that pro- that strategic problem solving takes all the time. The, the best way to solve problem is, you know, strategic equals creative plus analytical and being creative first, analytical second. So the, the creative bit, if it was on a roller coaster, is go up with your energy, with your enthusiasm, with some structured thinking and come up with lots of possible options. And then the bit that differentiates a pure creative person, as you alluded to, sometimes people are very creative, a tendency maybe to fall in love with their ideas. And a strategic person has a slightly bizarre click, which is at the top of the roller coaster, they switch mindset. And now they go, I don't really care which of my seven ideas turns out to be the best. What I want is I want to, I will kind of I, w- I wait until the downward part of the roller coaster, find out which of these seven is the one that's the winner, and that's the one I'll back. Yeah. And in that contrast, you know, with the sort of in the roller coaster of being, it, it's it's a roller coaster of both um, creativity and also it's it's an intellectual roller coaster and an emotional roller coaster. And for example, that image is a fantastic way to make sense of people like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. You know, every anecdote about Steve Jobs talked about how extraordinary visionary he was and how um, 
sort of painful as a human being he was to work with, whether as family or colleagues or boss. And when you realize that, I mean, nobody would have called uh, Steve Jobs anything other than strategic. And one of the things that he did very naturally is get super enthusiastic around some ideas. Um, and then once they were, okay, let's make that happen, then be ruthless at sort of testing testing them nearly by destruction. And that ability to go from, I love it, to I hate it, is sometimes giving yourself a bit of whiplash because you have to go through, let's come up with three, three four, five possible solutions. And then pose. Um, what I do is I don't drink coffee, I only drink tea, which is how I got the passport. And so, um, <laughs> and you know, and um, you're going to make a cup of tea. And then when you come back, you, you know, sometimes you role play a slightly meaner version of yourself that rolls its eyes at the the collection of ideas that your previous self came up with. Uh, you must have come across, come across um, Edward de Bono's work, right? And um, absolutely the six, the six thinking hats and just. That idea of taking taking an idea and then looking at it almost like with different lenses, and you know, let's look at the resource part of this. Let's think about the negative aspects of this, and you know, potential things that we've not spotted. And I think sometimes we can make big decisions, but but we don't do that uh, kind of thinking often enough when we're making some of those decisions, right? Yes, and part of the issue is if you think about you know six thinking hats. I think if either of us challenged each other to name the six, we prob- we know the technique. Yeah. We know the color of yeah. the hat, but we couldn't kind of, I couldn't kind of, of the tip of my tongue, list the six. That's because six feels like a slight overkill. And, and here is the comment. When I talk about the roller coaster, really, I go, there's like three stages, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and, and I literally call them up, down, push. So first be mm-hmm. very positive, then go very negative, and then really push the thing that you're left with. And, you, and, and, and actually, interestingly enough, if you want to take it into a more uh, male environment, you can recognize uh, Winnie the Pooh, where, you know, you go Tigger first, Eeyore second, and Winnie third. So <laughs> f- first be super enthusiastic, then be very critical, then be practical. That's cool. So you get to, so wherever you are listening to this, you can channel your inner E or, or Tigger, like depending on the absolutely uh, which, which part of the process you're in. Absolutely. And, and and rebounding on that, one of the tips, you know, we talk about sort of um, uh, over the book in the book itself. There's like there's the roller coaster, then there's twelve techniques that people apply in practice, and at the end there's kind of a few a few tips. And one of the uh, one of the tips I would make uh, is uh, that is not in there. Let me call it tip six: is um, you have to be Tigger before you're Eeyore, and that's really really important because for you know whether people are looking, for example, in current in current situation, um, if you if you tell yourself that you need more information before you decide, the future is so uncertain that you're going to trap yourself into a vortex of sort of Eeyore-ishness. And so the way to be strategic is to go, I don't know enough, that's true, but let me invent three or four possible solutions. You know, I could I could work from home, I could do that, I could change up, I could do X, Y, Z. And then once you've laid them out, then you go, what's wrong? What, what's the good and bad with each of these? And you'll find that you get a bit, you get a bit uh, further. And then typically, linked with that, sometimes you might not do it on your own. You might do it at work with a few colleagues. One of my tip is small teams go up and large teams go down. So if you're going to try and be optimistic and positive and find a way, um, you're probably better off with a small group of people, three or four, not more. And if you're trying to eliminate an idea, because effectively in a small group, you can you can create an illusion for uh, as a team that you'll find a way. You know, the army use rangers or small or you know, if you look at sort of uh, um, people go ahead and and explore the path, they're usually very very small team because it's discreet, it's quick, it's nimble. And then when you have these ideas, then what you want is a large body of people. You really want then the person who's going to tell you why it's wrong, and you needed that very narrow expertise that they have that kind of help dampen an idea. So small teams go up and large teams go down. Love that. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the happiness line, um, partly because we're on Beyond Busy and we talk a lot on this podcast about not just productivity, but also how people define happiness and success. And the happiness line in the book, I think, 
people listening to this are going to have to go and get the book to um, <laughs> uh, find out some more because I think a lot of it is um, it's a very visual sort of graphic representation. But I just love the sort of the idea of the tension, um, like the the sort of happy tension thing that you talk about. So do you want to just explain um, where that comes from and what it is? With pleasure. Yes, indeed. So the happy life is a construction. There is a, um, a, a strategy professor who uh, teaches at INSEAD called Chan Kim, who um, came up with a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, which has been a you know, phenomenal success. Chan Kim is, if you're in the rarefied world of strategy and strategy consulting, is one of the rock stars. And um, the, the format before Blue Ocean Strategy um, was something called the happy line. And um, the two are slightly different. Blue Ocean Strategy is about how you completely invent new worlds, hence the blue ocean, you know, blue, a completely sort of open-ended corner. The happy line is a bit more, how do you make the best out of the circumstances you find yourself in? And um, if I make a, an analogy, uh, the, the happy line is a fantastic way to help, is a structured thinking technique to help improve a relationship. Because it says the key to success, the key to um, productivity, the key to everything, Chan Kim introduces the notion that there's another party. You're doing it not just for you. There's someone else involved. So to be successful in business, you've got to have a client that's happy. You've got to have employees that are happy. Um, you've got to have regulators that are happy. And what he suggests, it's if I use a, a more uh, well-known uh, sort of popular say, is there's, you know, the golden rule is treat others as you would like to be treated. And Chen Kim introduces this idea that actually it's a good rule, but there's a better rule is the better rule is treat others as they would like to be treated. Right. Because everyone has subjective preferences. And so, for example, for many people who are looking, you know, some people might have difficulties in, in, in a career or in a relationship. Or the example they often find, because they often use, is parents. You go, you know what? There might be out of your two parents, there might be one you get along with really easily and another one it's a bit harder. Uh, likewise, you know, uh, your boss, you might have a certain relationship or some clients. And what Chen Kim posits with the happy line is if you create a two dimensional picture, and it's hard to explain it like this, but it goes on the horizontal axis, plot the criteria that matter to the other person and preferably in decreasing order. And then on the vertical axis, you plot how well you're doing on these dimensions. So, you know, if it's your boss that you want to please, you go, what's important to my boss? And some of you would have a boss for whom the most important thing is, you know, on-time delivery, then it will be accuracy, then will be I don't know, foreign languages, then will be making tea. For other people, you might have a boss who values, you know, uh, uh, emotional intelligence above everything, and then creativity, and then on-time is a much less important criteria. And so what you've identified here on that horizontal axis is, the relative importance of what Chen Kim calls purchasing criteria, the relative importance of aspects of performance to the other person. And effectively, your performance at work is a subjective activity where someone else decides whether you're doing well or not. And what many people do is they don't put themselves in the shoes of the other party in trying to satisfy someone. And you might be giving them more and more and more of stuff they don't really care about rather than a little bit of what they really care. That's so true, isn't it? Because often you'll just think about it more from the point of view of here's the thing that I care about and I'm doing a good job with it. So therefore I'm succeeding. Yes. And you're right. There's, a, there's And also there's, a, you know, and I can see it myself too. There's a um, virtuous circle is if there's something you're good at, usually you find it, it's pretty important to you. So you do more of it, which is why you get good at, which you value even more. And you can st sometimes get trapped into doing more and more whilst getting less. I mean, if I bring it to a very simple scenario that everyone will be, you know, listening will be familiar, is when your romantic relationship, there's a tendency, how much thought do you put into the, the criteria of the other party when you make a present? Mm, yeah. Do you offer the other person what you would like to get, or do you offer them what they would like to get? And it takes a, and, and the beauty about um, the happy line and Schenkin, and I would argue many of the techniques in the book is they, they are the, uh, the, um, the boundary between IQ and EQ. They are the boundary between sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, in intelligence uh, and emotional intelligence because they make you think, okay, what would another stakeholder want or what would be really important? 
shout out to my best mate at uni, Gareth Parker. Um, and on his birthday one year, I bought him the CD of Common's uh, album, Like Water for Chocolate, just because I wanted it. And I had a mini disc player. So I could <laughs> basically like record it onto mini disc and then it was done. Right. So, um, Shout out to Gareth, and he, he he knows I've changed since then. I was about to go. say it's big of you to. Uh, to <laughs> interesting enough, I, I could I could reciprocate and sort of uh, demonstrate humble bragging because I can absolutely uh, see that um, when my um, when my uh, sort of my, the student my, my peers at INSEAD, a business school in in France, twenty bit years ago. When they found out that I was kind of explaining emotional intelligence technique, many of them laughed because I was a, you know, I'm a French rocket scientist. And when they met me, I was probably slightly trapped in a narrow, very analytical, very mathematical uh, view of the world. And we all grow. Nice. By listening to podcasts like yours. (laughs) Um, So a couple of other things on strategy, then I'm going to talk to you about your own productivity and your own work-life balance too. Um, so one of the sections that you talked about on that roller coaster is this idea of push. And so let's say you've come up with lots of ideas, you've tested them, you've, you've got rid of some of them, you, and then you've committed to the ones that really matter. And then a really important part of, of that strategic process becomes how to sell those ideas to other people. And of course, this is something that even when you're not making a strategic decision, you know, we have to sell ideas to everybody all the time right and so in the book you've got these three um sort of elements to that so through impactful words simple numbers and compelling stories i wonder if you've just got any thoughts about just just some simple techniques that people can take away around just how to sell ideas and how to persuade Yes. So the, um, indeed, so, you know, the shorthand is sort of words, numbers, and story. And, um, if you think about the story that the best structure universally acknowledged to be the best way to structure a story, something called the peering principle, where you, you create a series of post-its or, or notes where you go, you know, you've got one at the top, three below that, nine below that, 27, you follow a rhythm of, of three. And at the top, you go, this is the conclusion. This is what I'm recommending, or this is what I think we should do, either as an organization or myself. Or, And then below that, literally, you go, the three reasons why that should be the case are X, Y, Z. And when you make the effort of writing the story that way, you'll be amazed at how you take something that's quite complicated. For example, you know, we have uh, overcome the uh, COVID pandemic. And then you go, okay, what would need to be true for that? Well, you know, one, because, you know, um, the virus is not circulating freely in the, in the population at large anymore. And um, um, uh, the economy has started again, and there's no risk of a third wave. Okay, well, you know that that will be a pretty powerful message to deliver to Parliament, possibly around, you know, February or March next year. And then you go, now we've created the structure. And it's quite easy to remember the three bits. So not circulating anymore. GDP is, is you know, economy is back and it's not going to happen again. And so when you take a, a story, usually follow it up or back it up through three components and replicate that. So you go from one to three to nine to 27. So then, so taking that pyramid, so uh, one of those is that the economy is working again. So then you would come up with like, what are the three reasons that the economy is working? It's like the service sector has improved and people are using shops again, you know, whatever those, so you, so you base three things around each of those. Is that, is that how that works essentially? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. That's a cool little, um, that's a cool little structure. I like it. I love the bit because you talk about the pyramid in the book where there's like the, if this is true and that is true and you're kind of using threes in that same kind of way, right? Yes. And I have the one exercise. So I'm, I'm veering up. It's in the book as well. But one of the things, you know, a lot of the techniques in the book I mentioned is like sort of, you know, 20 years or 15 years of training uh, shoehorned into 200 pages. Mm-hmm. And one of the homework I usually give to people, uh, and I tend to link strategic. Th- so it's about strategic thinking. And I, I find that people learn the technique better if they can apply it to their own life. Because when, once you realize the kind of different solutions that strategic thinking bring to your day-to-day personal problem solving, it's very easy to make the leap and go, of course, it's going to work for my work environment. And so one of the things I recommend with a pyramid, for example, is 
you know, if you want, if you wanted to tell a story to yourself in in a, let's say in a year's time, uh, a lot of people today will ask themselves, you know, how is my life going to look like next year? Just that question you could probably hear massively rises. You know, it makes anxiety go through the through the roof because you go, what's my life going to be like next year? What's my life going to be like? And that's one of the limitation of the analytical approach to problem solving in the future because we don't have the answer for what your life's going to be. And what the pyramid principle, for example, uh, suggests is instead of focusing on the question, flip it into an answer and populate backwards. So what that means here is I get people to write on the wall, my life is a great success in 2022. Just writing it, and you can see already the anxiety goes down. So people start smiling. They go, oh, that's cool. That's, I like that. And then I go, now, before we go into PR mode, let's, go, let's actually be strategic and go, what would need to be true for that to be true? And literally, you go, well, if you know, my job is there or I find some, some kind of gainful employment and uh, everyone in my family has overcome the virus quite well, and then you know, my mental health has, has gone through that uh, unaffected, then my life is pretty good. Yeah. And by the way, please note that might be a first draft where you go, you know, financial, family, mental health. And you might go, actually, let me reorder that. Let me start with family, then mental health, then financial. And you go, yeah, that's a story that, that meets better maybe my idea of priorities. And then, and so th- th- there's some beautiful ways um, that way to um, connect sort of the power of strategic thinking in your day to day life. And then realizing that if if on an issue that you know so well, which is you know how your life is going, a tiny technique that you borrow from outside can help give you clarity and loss of anxiety, then it's not too difficult to go, wow, uh, if I apply a few more minutes and I brought in a few more colleagues to do the same thing with our, you know, either our team or our division or our company at work, then we're quite likely to achieve the same outcome. I really feel like that's a neat segue into the other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of the book is one of your five tips at the end is the third solution is often the best. Mm-hmm. And it sort of feels like there's this um, magic power of three, you know, three is the magic number. Um, so tell us about why the third solution is often the best. So this one, I can't quite explain it. It's one of these, uh, you know, heuristic, which is a fancy word for I've been, I've been, I've been noticing it. It's a bit like the, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, there's a little bit where, you know, maybe that's in a meeting when you have yings and yangs and eors and tiggers and, sort of, you know, there's, there's going to be someone who's going to plant a um, stake in the ground and go, boom, that would be a solution. Everyone rolls their eyes. And at the other end, someone goes, boom, no, really. And, you know, we should stay what we've been doing. And, pe- and then the third one is often some sort of compromise. Um, and then then you might go, there might be a fourth and a fifth. And sometimes the fourth and the fifth are a little bit too crazy, a bit too fancy. Um, and they usually play a good role. Um, and then what you find is, you know, if it was sort of the Olympics, uh, whether a swimming pool or, or uh, you know, 100 meters, you'd let them run. And then you'd find that typically, it's, you know, it's the middle lane that tends to arrive first. Yeah. And it's going to be a bit like that, where the third, the third answer is often the best one. Nice. I, it really reminds me of, um, when I was in my first ever management job and I was still a student at this point and I worked for this bank and, um, they made us do this exercise. It was to, to gain a management position and they made us do this exercise to test team working skills. Mm -hmm. And my supervisor at the time who was really rooting for me, um, just took me to one side before I did it and said, and just gave me this really simple advice, which always stuck with me, which is like, okay, they are, they're not looking for the leader at this point. They're looking for how you relate to others and how you work in a team. So everyone will just fly off the handle and start answering stuff, just hang back and then just, you know, wait for the lull in the conversation. And then you present this sort of you know, the compromise, the the, the middle way uh, and kind of sum up what people have been discussing so far, because it shows that you're listening. It shows that you're not kind of hot headed, sort of running in there trying to impress everybody or whatever. And like, it's the quietly confident, you know, uh, person who hangs back that succeeds in this. And it, like, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's like the, you know, everyone's, you know, sort of pulled an idea from this direction, that direction. And if you're just like somewhere in the middle, 
you're likely to kind of have more of an influence. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love I love your approach. Very good. Um, love it. Um, so let's talk a co- about a couple of other things outside of the book. Um, you you dropped this in a few minutes ago. Um, oh yeah, I used to be a rocket scientist. Um, so that's one of those things where obviously there's you know people have this uh, saying that it's not rocket science. Um, so tell me what rocket science is actually like. <laughs> well, so I, I am a rocket scientist, but I'm also someone who's lived in Britain for 20 years. So I know it has social cachet here. Yeah. I promise I promise you that in dinner parties in France, when you say I'm a rocket scientist, they go, yeah, whatever. Because <laughs> th- th- there's, a, there's two schools of rocket science. There's a rocket science industry. So it, the, the flip equivalent is if you tell people in France that you're in a band, they go, oh, wow. Oh, really? And in Britain, you're in a, ba- you're in a band. It's like, yeah, everyone is in a band, ain't it? And that's the same. <laughs> that has the same sort of, so, you know, at the risk of being unfair on my fellow uh, French citizen, you know, French music hasn't really taken on the world since uh, probably the 16th century. And so, um, you know, being, uh, so French music is a bit behind the times. And that's also because very few students are in a band. It's not a, yeah. it's not a rite of passage. It's not something you do in Britain. That's kind of like, Oh, you went through university without being in a band. What was wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, and so right, yeah. Rocket science has a tiny bit of that particular a bit. It's a sort of, I, I, I sometimes describe it as an, ex, an extreme form of mathematical nerdiness. Uh, have you watched the documentary about Challenger that's on Netflix at the moment? Oh, that's on my, that's very much on my watch list. Yeah. Um, I won't spoil it, but I think you'll find it fascinating. And I, what I found really fascinating, because I was, I was quite young when that happened, but I remember being at a McDonald's birthday party and then coming home and my mum telling me about it because it was going to be on the news um that you know all these people had watched this this rocket go up and and these people just basically be uh killed in midair you know and it was just this awful thing and it's still kind of seared on my brain as being this you know maybe it maybe it might even be my first memory of there being a tragedy because mm. i still remember it really vividly but it's a it's a really interesting documentary and I suppose what is interesting about it is that it's not really about rocket science or the challenger at all. It's kind of about human error and um, how how certain people under certain um, sort of moments of pressure make decisions that aren't great. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting watch and um, I won't say any more than that, but um, yeah, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it on Netflix. Um, We, when we were about to schedule this, we were going to do this conversation last week and it was September here in the UK and it was really sunny. And you sent me a really lovely email that was like, Graham, the sun's out. Can we do this next week? And I just really liked it. So uh, it's one of those things that I'm often tempted to do. And then for some reason, I never do it. So I wondered if you had learned how to uh, how to sort of organize your work around work-life balance and simple pleasures like sitting in your garden and enjoying the sunshine. Oh, very, very, very much so. And sort of, it, it, it's it's even a joke among my, my friend, which is I'm, I'm sort of a weather bureau because <laughs> you know I, I'm a proper I'm a proper strategic thinker, which is I have I have indoor activities and outdoor activities. So typically, for example, um, you know, uh, inventing new stuff is best done indoors because it's a bit intense, etc. Uh, uh, seeping in new knowledge, I love doing it outdoors, and so I schedule things. And I know I have a tiny balcony. It's a really tiny balcony outside, but it faces south. And so in in London, you know, whenever there's a when sun's out, sort of, you know, I, I don't know. There's an expression that goes, "When sun's out, guns out." And I should come up with something a bit similar with me. Um, and now, if Talking about productivity, I'm going to share something that some some of you will hate me for, uh, but I want to kind of mention it there. Um, so I've been an entrepreneur, and I had some point I had 20 employees uh, working really hard, and, uh, and then through various circumstances, I ended up um, uh, working solo for the last 15 years. And then when I didn't have any employees anymore, I was a bit more in charge of my own diary. And I realized that in my line of work to help people think better, you know, I usually describe myself as kind of, I help smart people get smarter. And for that, I have to stay a step ahead, not necessarily in smartness, but at least in, in, in knowledge about smart sources. And so I have to read, I have to ingest, I have to be abreast of what's happening. And I found it hard to combine that with, you know, the pressures of day-to-day job. And so one of the things I decided is um, about 15 years ago, so 2007, I decided that I would be closed for the whole of January. 
and I would shoot off to the tropics and read 20 business books. Nice. And so every year I read 20 books in the tropics, actually read 30, but then I take the, uh, that gives me the opportunity to not finish, you know, 10 of them. Um, <laughs> so a bit of a sort of Britain's got talent approach to it. So there's an elimination round. Uh, my list of, my list of books is on Goodreads and by having sort of having the, um, I have the discipline because I know that some of my alumni, you know, I've trained about 10,000 people now, um, wait for the sort of end of January release of my list. So it's nowhere near Ooh. as popular as the Barack Obama reading list, but it's a kind of like, huh, I wonder what, you know, I wonder what Fred has been doing on a lounger in Sri Lanka this, this year. Mm. And, and it's a great way to effectively give yourself the space to really read stuff around productivity, um, um, you know, squiggly career, lots of other things, um, possibly, hopefully your contribution to the world in a written format very soon again, uh, Graham. And then um, read things. So at the moment, for example, in January, I was in uh, Buenos Aires for a month, or Argentina and Uruguay, and I read lots of stuff around AI. Uh, last year, I read a couple of stuff around, you know, Bitcoin and and and, um, and you and you create your own, you know, you stimulate your brain by hiving off um, moments that are entirely dedicated to growth. Mm. And better people than me have found ways to do that by reading a book every every evening. And I know it doesn't work for me. And so in a bizarre fashion, my productivity hack is to collapse all of my uh, growth and all of my reading into one discrete pocket, uh, which, you know, by the time you add up all the hour here and there, you know, an hour a day, um, that's probably equivalent to what I do in January. But I found a way to reschedule it that way. I mean, I actually used to do something very similar. So for a, a good seven, eight years in the early part of, of Think Productive's history, my business, and actually a little bit before that too, I would always in the winter go to Goa. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people were sort of surprised about was the fact that every time I went away, I went to the same beach I sat in the same bars, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, the, it was almost like a routine thing. And people would say, well, why didn't you go somewhere else? And it's like, no, cause the point is that I don't want to have to think about anything else. And I would, I would literally take a stack of business books. This was in the, in a few years before the Kindle came out. And then I was taking Kindle for a few years. Um, it changed a little bit once I had a child. So mm-hmm. I've only been, I think I've been twice and he's six. So, um, I'm not getting that out there every year at the moment, but that would be the, the intention of it. I would take a big stack of business books. I'd also, uh, you know, sort of take my pad to do business planning and, and you know, idea generation and uh, maybe write some slides and that kind of thing. But yeah, like very much a time of just no clients, no email, uh, you know, pretty much solitude uh, and just doing doing work in the sunshine in, in the in this sort of British winter time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. That sounds fascinating. And I love your your hack of just going, let me not overstimulate my explorator brain by just going to the same beach. Yeah. So that, you know, you get like uh, 24 hours of real excitement of being back. And then it's kind of like, it's a bit of a routine. And then all the excitement comes from the page in front of you rather than yeah, the environment around yeah. you. Absolutely. I love yeah. that. And, it, and if I look back on, on Think Productive, my business, you know, I, I can think of, three or four of our best-selling workshop products were all written on basically the same two balconies in mm-hmm. Goa, right? Because like, it's just, you know, and just waking up really early in the morning and just being able to look out to see and write is just, it, it's a really beautiful um, sort of, you know, wonderful way of doing it. Um, but it sounds like you travel around a bit. So so Buenos Aires and then Sri Lanka, um, was that uh, the Sri Lanka was the year before, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then you know what? Rebounding from the comment, one of the one of the notions I have, and that's an interesting one, which is people are you know, there's four different types of jobs. There's a product process performance. Well, let's go with three, but you know, product process performance. Mm. And um if you do performance, it's um um use and bolt. Effectively, your life is entirely dependent on 10 seconds every four years. And yeah. yes, there's a few competitions in between, but fundamentally, it's 10 seconds every four years. And the way you optimize to achieve that peak is very different from a job where you show up every day and you've got to, say, you've got to do the same thing. And it's a very different. And typically, when people talk about productivity, one of the reasons I'm a little bit uh, reticent um, about sort of the, the let's call it the 
the extreme form of productivity is that applies really, really well when you're in process types of uh, occupation. Yeah. When you're in a product, oh, sorry, I missed the 4P, product or project, which is a bit the same thing. But when you have a project, there's, a, you know, consulting, there's a six-month time frame, you run quite a bit. But if you go straight into another six-month thing where you're running the same speed, you're going to choke because um, it's not the, the 100 yards of um, 100 meters of use and bolt, but you have to be at a high level of concentration and performance, and then you allow yourself a break in the middle. And that's where I got this idea of, you know, going, I'm probably like you, going on the beach for a bit. If you're a process person, so you've got process, performance, project, um, and, and product, and they have slightly different rhythm, and what looks like a really smart, productive way to optimize yourself for delivery looks very different from the outside. Yeah, okay. When you see when you see Usain Bolt, if you were to examine his daily routine, there's a lot of, you know, being horizontal and sleeping and lying about. Yeah. Which doesn't look very productive until you factor in the way in which he explodes energy and 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 etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Which again coming back to your thing of wanting to stay one step ahead, you know, in terms of that um helping smart people to get smarter. You know, you like you need to have those breaks and that 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 kind of break in the normal rhythm of things. Absolutely, love that. Um, it sounds like you have um, a skepticism around like productivity, uh, like I was going to say media or kind of um, the the stories that people tell each other about productivity and and that whole thing and. The, the good news is I do too, but like, um, t- tell me w- more about your relationship with productivity and, um, things that, things that you perhaps see online that you really disagree with. Um, well, so it, it sometimes refer to it as, you know, the productivity industrial complex. Um, and sometimes, you know, Tim Ferriss and the four hour week, a lot of it seems to be around, um, effect, uh, sort of, uh, efficiency rather than effectiveness. Yeah. And so, um, it's about the, the sort of the, the over-optimization of, so th- for example, just very simply put, um, can you see that, you know, you're talking about a, a young child. Um, I also sort of, you know, split up when uh, my son was quite young and we traveled a lot together. And, and there's a bit where when you're trying to optimize a relationship with another human, <laughs> um, you miss the pockets of um, unproductive time and you know and i know that that's where a lot of bonding takes place Mm. and it's where a lot of the beauty happens and without wanting to bring all of that to a work environment a lot of the and and that's an interesting challenge in the covid time a lot of the um you know a lot of the uh, literature around uh, successful organizations talk about motivated teams who feel quite strong cultural bond to one another. And if you ask where the bond took place, it was not in the shaving of seconds in the handover between tasks. It was in the slightly unproductive discussion or allegedly unproductive discussions around the, um, you know, around the water cooler or in the kitchen. Yeah. Or sharing the birthday cake or whatever. Absolutely. And so there's a little bit around that where, you know, if you look back, if anybody, any of you, any of the listeners will think back and go, what has been the most productive thing I've ever done in, in my life? And sometimes, you know, in a professional context, and sometimes you might just talk to a random stranger who happened to be X, Y, Z, and it could have been a wasted minute, and it turned out that it changed your life with a job offer and or other circumstances. And so there's a little bit about, and the way I think of it is I think of it as a productivity budget, which is I sponsor my serendipitous productivity by extracting budget from my uh, efficiency productivity. So uh-huh. there are bits where I go, I'm going to be super efficient. I'm going to, you know, write these, uh, this chapter of the book, I'm going to give myself six hours and it's going to be done. I have to do X thousand words. And I'm going to be super productive. And at the end of that, I'm going to give myself a couple of hours of setting a piece of time. And, and, and it's that, and again, you recognize possibly the roller coaster of strategic thinking, which is you do better by combining two extremes of heat and cold rather than having something tepidish. So be ruthlessly productive in areas where it matters, but allow yourself to be sort of ruthlessly serendipitous if it's not a contradiction in term Mm -hmm. in areas where you want to create, you know, and for for you, by the sound of it, it might be uh, go on a walk. You know, if we come back all the way to the beginning, you were saying that's where sometimes you refresh your, your brain. Um, for me, one of the ways to refresh my brain is literally to pick a book on a subject that has a zero thing, nothing to do with what 
currently occupies me. Nice. And, and what's also interesting is that often if you do that, you'll find some interesting connections and like that serendipity will come in all kinds of different forms that may well even inform the work, help the work and, and so on. Right. Like I think there's, um, you know, one, one of, uh, one of my ninja characteristics of, uh, in productivity ninja is all about unorthodoxy and just kind of taking inspiration from really unusual places. I think it's often, um, it's, it's too boring and predictable to only, uh, sort of read on your own subject matter or only take the advice of Steve Jobs and Richard Branson and the kind of, uh, known names, so to speak. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I, that really resonates with me, that whole ruthless serendipity thing. Um, the, the other thing that it sort of springs to mind for me is, um, uh, I talk a lot about a productivity ninja being a human and not a superhero because it really, it, it really bugs me the whole, um, like let's try and optimize everything kind of mentality. Um, and, uh, I think, I think sometimes people feel like that's how I, um, want the world to be too. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just think those richer, uh, experiences around the fringes of things are often where a lot more of the excitement is. Indeed, in particular, you know, um, when you, so for example, when the world changes and when the world changes and you, you know, uh, people talk about sort of the, you know, the power of habits, habits are fantastic if nothing changes around you. Um, if, th- if lots of things are changing around you, whether, you know, personally or professionally or in the wider environment, then clearly you don't know what the next solution is going to be, the next best solution is going to be. And the next, and the way to discover that is through discovery. And and the best way to discover is, you know, there's a school of thought that goes, you know, test and learn. And I would plug onto that a little bit upstream, the idea of have as many ideas as you can. And before you test and learn them, then you kind of pare them down to a reasonable amount, but have lots of, and so there is, Effectively, efficiency or habit is is a downstream um, concern when the world is still unknown. When the world is well known, it's perfectly fine to find ways to, you know, on your journey to work when it's the, the same commute, to find ways to take this street rather than that street to shave a few seconds skipping that traffic light. When you are finding a situation where you have to, dis- to completely reinvent what the definition of going to work means, then what you're better off is coming up with lots of alternative options uh, rather than try to optimize the one that you just happen to have settled upon, which we haven't really touched upon, which is the big, big, big unsaid in that, which is personality types, Mm. which is people have different, you know, have default preferences. And I'm going to throw my son in it, uh, in his absence. Sorry, Louis. (laughs) But um, so his mom and I have a possibly default preference for things being on the spontaneous end of the spectrum rather than the organized end of the spectrum. And when Louis was younger, he was very much on the, I prefer things organized. And then, you know, as a parent, as a responsible little stakeholder or as a, as a responsible adult, you can either, a lot of people kind of force their children to adjust to their cultural preferences, um, whether, you know, political, cultural, etc., Or you kind of go, you know, the happy line is perfect example of the happy line. And then one of the solutions we both discovered with Louis is when you would say, you know, what's the plan this weekend? Um, every other weekend we would have created a little plan because you know that makes him happy and then every other weekend when we didn't have a plan instead of telling him you know we're just going to chill we would say things like the plan is to chill and <laughs> and all of a sudden the plan was to chill which is a perfectly acceptable plan for him yeah. and so sort of in his mental uh, diaries he would like put a line through Saturday and Sunday and write chill, you know, at which point there's a plan. We're not just, and so personality types come into, come into the equation where it comes to, you know, how do you make, um, you know, how do you make a cat very productive as opposed to how you make a dog very productive, you know, dogs, you can train them and they love a bit of productivity. Cats, it's a nightmare. Harding cat <laughs> is a, is an expression for a reason. And it's a bit the same thing with, if I bring it back, you know, if I combine sort of the productivity ninja with the, the strategic thing, how to be strategic and the roller coaster is in the roller coaster, most people are good at one bit of the journey, but not the others. 
And so some people are very good at being very creative upfront, but then they get a bit too subjective and enamored of their solution even, even when they're not very practical. Um, on the other hand, you have people who might be very good, you know, that so the person I described might be a bit tiggerish. Um, you have EORs who are really good at finding the flow in everything, but left unattended, their world is not going to change much. And so there's a bit where to become a better strategist or a better, a more productive ninja, you probably have to embrace your dark side, embrace the bit that doesn't come very naturally to you. And time and time again, there's only two ways to really achieve that is either, you know, you grow to become able to do the bit that doesn't come naturally to you, or you find, you know, in life or at work, a partner um, who compensates your strength with their strength. And this is often, this feels like such a lovely um, conclusion and way to finish the conversation because I often, I often get asked because I've done about a hundred hours of, of podcasts now. And, you know, typically with people who've written books, CEOs, high achievers, creative people, and I'm often asked, what's the lesson and the through line and the thread line through all of these people? And, you know, what can we learn about high achievement through this? And I always just say, I've only learned one thing and it's this, just that humans are weird, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. we're all, we're all, we're all weird. We're all different. And actually a lot of the richness comes from, like you say, embracing that dark side and kind of recognizing that other people will be really different to you in the way that they work. And that's how you grow and, and, and sort of get somewhere better, uh, you know, together with them. Absolutely. And, you know, there's no such queer as folks and uh, the journey never ends. We discover more quirks every every time about ourselves and about others. Um, I've loved this conversation. It's been um, a lot more philosophical than I was expecting a conversation about how to be strategic to be. So like, so I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being on Beyond Busy, Busy Fred. And um, where can people find out more about you and where can they get the book and uh, just... Uh, just tell us what you want to want to plug at the end here. Yeah, so the book is you know in every good bookshop. Um, uh, How to be strategic coming out uh, online. Uh, sorry, you know, digital, physical, and audio um, on the eighth of October. And then for more things about me, it's fredpelar.com. F r f r e d p e l a r d dot com. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. My pleasure. It was lovely. Thank you, Graham. So there you go. Thanks to Fred for being on the show. Thanks also, as ever, to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. If you're interested in productivity, training and coaching, then go to thinkproductive.com. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer, and to Emily for helping to put all this together. Um, we have been doing a lot of work on the graymalcott.com uh, website and on lots of other uh, marketing-related stuff. So kind of um looking forward to the next few weeks of really kicking a lot of my marketing stuff into gear it's been like my new year's resolution really for 2020 and it i don't know got a little bit derailed at points in the year with um you know being basically like full-time on the dad stuff um a lot of days but um yeah really a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes and looking forward to sharing that with you in the next few weeks so yeah, check out uh, what's been changing at graymalcott.com um, and also you can always find out what i'm doing with the graymalcott uh, dot com forward slash now um, this is an idea from Derek Sivers and uh, I put this in my email signature but it's also um, available just on the graymalcott.com site so if you're ever curious like what's Graham working on just graymalcott.com forward slash now and I'd really recommend you doing the same thing like having your own now page it's a really cool little thing so there you go and um, that's my uh, little closing ramble uh, so we'll be back in a week's time with another episode so until then wherever, I, wherever you are stay safe Take care. Bye for now.